There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 423. Today in the show, we're answering listener questions about scouting and revealing some exciting news about the future of Wired to Hunt. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we've got a hell of a crew. It's a motley crew. We're covering a lot. We're going to first touch on some updates, some very exciting updates in the world of Wired to Hunt. And then we're going to answer some questions from all of you. We're going to talk summer scouting, summer prep hunt planning, uh, all things in between, and who knows what else. We might even touch on bobcats and turkey mating rituals with our buddy Spencer Newharth, who's back on the show after a little bit of uh, a little bit of time away. He's been stolen over by Mediator. He's always over there now, and I can never get him on my show. But I came to Bozeman just to harass him into getting back on the whitetail uh, beat. So, Spencer, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Uh, yeah. You're welcome for being here. <laughs> also with me is Tony Peterson. Uh, Tony? Thanks for having me, buddy. Good to have you back on the show and, and around. We've been able to do a lot together lately. We've, we're have we besties now, man. I know. Yesterday we were filming, and Tony wanted me to sit on a rocking bench on a hillside, <laughs> tried to put his arm around me, and wanted to talk about our future together. <laughs> it got kind of weird. It was just such a beautiful setting. I mean, it was. I get that. Uh, and then to my left, I've got the man behind the men, the podcast editor. (laughs) We got Hayden and Hayden, how do I pronounce your last name properly? Hold on. Hold on. Should you explain that a little better? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's the guy who edits the podcast. Okay. He's, he's the one behind all of what we do. So Hayden pronounced it. Samick. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hayden is podcast editor. He's yeah. a whitetail hunting nut, right? Would you say that's category? Was that correct? Yeah, I'd say that's accurate, man. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What else do we want to share with the world about Hayden? Hmm. Uh, we we share a similar interest in fly fishing. How about that? I like that. I do like that about you a lot. 
What I don't like is that you live in a better part of the country for it. And so in the middle of the winter, you're sending me text messages about the 50 fish days you're having while oh, yeah. I'm shoveling my driveway. Gotta love Bozeman, man. Yeah, you got it good there. Um, we probably can't talk about your girlfriend on air because it's kind of fresh and new. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Dude, what are you doing to me, man? <laughs> like I said, so we can't talk about it. I want to talk about it. There's a lot of great rodeo stories here we could discuss, but I'm not going to go down that road. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe we should stop right there. Yeah. Uh, so the reason we're all together is because we are working on a lot of cool new stuff in the Wired Hunt world. This year, we are, I don't know if we want to say relaunching or launching. Um, we're kicking off a bunch of new things with the Wired Hunt brand. For, for those of you who've been longtime followers, you knew Wired Hunt as a website where I wrote, and then you knew Wired Hunt as a YouTube channel where I produced my own videos. And then we launched the podcast. And then when Wired Hunt became a part of the Mediator family, you know, the website kind of disappeared, the YouTube videos stopped, and it became just a podcast. Well, excited to share with you that things are changing. We are getting all those goodies back. Wired Hunt, you might think of it as Wired Hunt 2.0, is live to the world now as of a couple days ago. And that means there's going to be more whitetail stuff for whitetail people like you than has ever been produced by Wired to Hunt or Meat Eater. And we've got a lot of really cool plans coming up. We've got, let me see here. Let's talk about all the stuff we've got coming up. We have a new Wired to Hunt website experience of sorts. So here on the new Wired to Hunt website, if you do, now I'm going to hit time out here a second. I'm going to tell you, Hayden, I'm going to drop a URL here. Uh-huh. And if, <laughs> and if this URL is wrong, I'd like for you to insert maybe like an exploding soundtrack or like a sound effect. Oh, yeah. And then come in with like the voice of God with the correct URL. Okay. Okay. I can tell you what the two options are probably going to be. Okay. So, so yeah. Tell me what the two options are possibly like, going to be. Like one would be the, the redirect like we talked about. Yep. So Wired Hunt, you can just go to wiredhunt.com. All right. So you go to wiredhunt.com. The other one would be the mediator.com backslash haunt backslash whitetail dash deer okay nobody's gonna remember that <laughs> just telling you yeah. the forward slash wired so hayden i still want you to do the exploding sound effect oh hell yeah even if we're right probably yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but but here's the options as, as spencer said there, there's the really long url and i want to keep what he said in there because it's catchy it's catchy as hell <laughs> But if you can't remember that very long URL, you could just go to TheMeatEater.com. TheMeatEater.com forward slash Wired. And you'll, you should see the Wired Hunt logo on the homepage. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, if things are going the way we want them to, you can click that and that will take you to the Wired Hunt experience. One way or another, you'll find this damn website where there's going to be a whole lot of whitetail content that is made for people that really love this stuff, that really want to get better at it. So if you listen to this podcast, you probably fit into that category. And so now we're going to give you a whole bunch more opportunities to do that with the number of articles we're going to have a week is is substantial, going to be from a whole slate of writers. You're going to see articles from myself still. You're going to see articles from Tony still. Probably going to see some articles from Spencer still. But then we've got a whole slate of new writers coming in from across the country 
Uh, Spencer, you are our website extraordinaire. How would you describe the slate of Wired Hunt writers we've got planned right now? All different backgrounds. Uh, folks from the east, the south, the north, the west. Folks that hunt with guns. Folks that hunt with bows. People that hunt public land. People that hunt private land. People that manage for big giant bucks. People that are opportunistic hunters. We're going to try to bring you like every whitetail voice that you can possibly find on the internet. And all right there within the Wired Hunt world, which is exciting. And not only will you find those articles on the new Wired Hunt site, you're also going to find a bunch of new videos. We are relaunching the Wired Hunt YouTube channel where we are going to be launching weekly how-to educational style short videos about how to kill deer, how to be a better deer hunter. Uh, Tony, you and I have been doing a bunch of these. We've, we're going to have other guest contributors as well. So there's going to be a whole slate of different people on these videos. But to this point, you and me have been hammering at it with the camera. How would you describe what folks can find on the Wired Hunt YouTube channel now? Oh, man, it's going to be it's going to be pretty comprehensive and pretty fun. I mean, the, the stuff that we're doing, we, we just sat down and said, what is the whitetail market missing? Like, how, how can we level up this content and address these questions and these hunting styles and these scouting tactics and all this all-encompassing whitetail lifestyle? Like, how can we deliver the best short-to-the-point videos on on helping people just level up their game? Yeah, you know, I think my... Now, there's a time and place for everything, but if there's any kind of pet peeve I have with some of the educational video content out there is that there's a lot of videos where it's just someone talking in circles for 15 minutes. So the video is like how to do A, and then they just kind of drone on about this for 12, 13 minutes, and they kind of touch on one or two takeaways maybe, but you had to watch 13 minutes of it to get those two takeaways, and they kind of said the same thing seven times in a row. I wanted to create the opposite. So I wanted to create like the most concentrated dose of exactly what you need to know as quickly and as efficiently and as, as in a punchy manner as possible. So these are quick videos. These are three and a half minute, four and a half minute videos, but you're going to learn more in these three minutes than you will with 15 minutes of that other one. So check that out if you want to get weekly kind of micro doses of uh super <laughs> helpful whitetail hunting knowledge and uh those will be on our newsletter too and if you're not already subscribed to wired hunt weekly highly recommend you do that that is our weekly newsletter where we're going to tell you about the new articles we published we're going to tell you about the new videos we published we're going to tell you about the new podcast you're going to get some little updates from me and other things like that along the way spencer what's the easiest way people can get signed up for that if you want to sign up for the newsletter on your desktop, and you go to the mediator.com in the very top right-hand corner, there is a little symbol that, that shows like a little avatar. You click on that, and then it says, get the latest to your inbox. Click on subscribe. You're going to get Wired to Hunt Weekly that comes out every Monday. If you're on your phone, same thing. Top right-hand corner, little nav bar. You scroll down. It says, get the latest to your inbox. You'll subscribe, and all of a sudden, um, starting that week, you're going to be getting these emails from Mark and the rest of the crew. Yeah, and I don't want to belabor all this too long, but there is a lot of new stuff coming out. Uh, so real quick, on the video side, in addition to those educational short how-to videos, we also have a new hunting show coming out this fall, and I'm going to save the details for later, but rest assured, this is going to be a really fun show. There's going to be a group of us hunting all across the country, and this is not a show with just me. We actually wanted this one to be interesting, so we've got... Tony Peterson on the show. 
We've got Spencer Newharth on the show, and we got Mr. Arkansas Clay Newcomb on the show as well. So the four of us are going to be taking over the Whitetail YouTube world with something new coming this fall. So stay tuned for that. And last but not least, on the podcast side of things, you should know this. Hopefully you saw the new Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast show up in your feed two days ago. But if for some reason you saw that and you ignored it, shame on you. First off, shame, shame on you. <laughs> and secondly, Tony Peterson's got a show now on the Wiretown podcast. We've got a new mini series that Tony's hosting. Tony, give us like the Cliff Notes version. If they didn't hear the first episode, what do they miss out on? Oh, man. Foundations is a comprehensive breakdown of all of these different concepts that, that are just like involved, ensconced in whitetail hunting from scouting to hunting tactics. And it's just all of these things we talk about, you know, like staging areas or long range glassing. And it's like broken down to a granular level for 15, 20 minutes, every episode, just taking one of these concepts, just explaining it fully and trying to make it actionable to deer hunters just across the whitetail range. And it kind of goes back to that whole microdose idea I described <laughs> earlier about what I was trying to do with videos. With videos, uh, We're kind of doing that on the podcast side too, right? So a regular Wired Hunt podcast, as anyone listening knows, might be a two-hour conversation where we kind of wind around and talk about a lot of different things. Some of it's right on topic. Some of it goes down weird rabbit holes, whatever. The Foundations podcast is that just super concentrated 15 minutes of nothing but exactly what you need to know about this very specific topic that's going to make you a better deer hunter. And it's 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 everything you want to know in as short of a time period as possible so that if you've got 15 minutes on the way to work and you want to pick something up or if you are driving to the property to go hunt tonight and you think to yourself, dang it, I need a better idea about what to do now with this situation. Oh, here's 15 minutes with Tony Peterson, one of the best damn deer hunters in the world, telling me exactly how to think about this. That's what foundation is going to give you. And I don't know about you, Hayden, but this, this, this shit's good. Oh, super useful. Super useful. Uh, you know, particularly for, uh, you know, new hunters, which is like such like an important thing. Like I, I feel like in meat eater and particularly the wired on podcasts and it's, it's the encouragement, it's the insight and it's not, uh, it's not like esoteric. It's not like that phd sort of level it's like it's a foundation Yep, you're gonna come out of this if, if you're new you are literally gonna have the foundation to do whatever you want to do in the deer hunting world if you're an experienced deer hunter you're gonna come to this and there's gonna be a level of detail in there though that's gonna absolutely help you level up i think that what we try to do with every one of these is get you from point a to z no matter where you are in that spectrum you're gonna find something within these that's gonna take you to the next step and i think that's that's what we all need. So, and if you're familiar with uh, some other podcasts in the Meteor Network, you'll know Remy Warren does a podcast weekly um, where he sort of dives into Western topics. He'll take something like optics and pick it apart. He'll take something like wind and pick it apart. Tony's new podcast, I think, could be described as like a shorter whitetail version of that. Just sort of a, a one man show, yep. uh, brain dump of of Tony's knowledge, which I think is gonna be awesome. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah, I think that's a it's it's gonna be a good comparison there. And uh, episode one is out there, so make sure you go listen to that one. Uh, Tony makes a wonderful analogy about uh, <laughs> childhood pen pals that I loved when I read that <laughs> script, and he talked about that. I just thought, yep, he nailed it. So look for that one and 
and send us notes afterwards once you uh, enjoy that little <laughs> little laugh from Tony. Uh, the last thing we got on there is if you go to that Wired to Hunt website experience, the 19 different URLs we told you about, the big exploding uh, sound effect there, we also have uh, new Wired Hunt shirts finally. So if you want to rep your Wired to Hunt uh, creds, check out the two new t-shirts that should be available on the site now. And that's it. That's what we've got in store. It's going to keep on growing. We're going to keep changing things, adding new things, new people, new voices. But the the basic headline here is, if you love whitetails, Wired to Hunt is going to have you covered every single day of the week in any way, way shape, or form you want to consume your content. Yeah, I think I think the most important takeaway here, uh, when we talked about doing this, it's like, what what is this new experience that we're making? Is it like a rebranding? Is it a new logo? Is it bringing in new people? I think what we decided on is that the the experience for you is triple the amount of content now coming at you from podcasts, written form, videos, all that stuff. It's going to be so much so that in the fall, there's going to be too much for one person to consume. But the idea is there that whether you're hunting big woods in Pennsylvania or food plots in Missouri or CRP in North Dakota, there's going to be something for everybody. Yeah, very true. So, uh, Saddle up, boys and girls. It's going to be a wild ride, and uh, Wired to Hunt will take you there. <laughs> I got lots of great lines, don't I? Uh, so the rest of the time, I wanted to talk about you know some of these different questions. It's We're recording this in the summer. It's early summer, and uh, for a lot of us, that means we're in that slow but steady rise in excitement and anticipation leading into the hunting season. Some of us are doing habitat improvements. Some of us are scouting. Some of us are hanging stands. Some of us are, well, I don't know sitting in a boat, drinking a beer, fishing. But uh, I want to tackle some thoughts and questions from, from everybody out there. So we asked folks for questions yesterday. Got a bunch of submissions. Uh, should we tackle some of those? Is everyone down for that? Yeah, buddy. All right. So let's start right here. Uh, we're just going to start at the 10,000-foot level. We got uh, Hustad187 asked, what are the most important things to look for when scouting for whitetails? This is very generic, very high level. Uh, we could go any way in the world with this. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to ask each one of us to have one idea, one scouting piece of advice when it comes to what to look for. And let's think within the context of summer. So what's one thing during the summer that's worth looking at and paying attention to when scouting for whitetails now? And new guys got to go first. Hayden, what do you got? <laughs> Why do you got to do me like that, man? Uh <laughs> I think my one piece of advice for summertime scouting is you have the, the summer to me is, is kind of all about locking down the kind of land that you're going to hunt and really understanding the best qualities of that land that you have to work with in Pennsylvania. You know, I hunted a bunch of tracks of like, really small pockets of a lot of like suburban land. And so what I would do is rather than focus on like, uh, you know, trying to identify like food sources or something, which didn't really exist a lot of times on the tracks that I was hunting, it was nailed down the best qualities that I had available to me, like travel corridors, creek bottoms, things of that nature. So my advice would be, uh, learning your land, figuring out what his best attributes were and focusing your efforts primarily on those. All right. 
I will, uh, I'll say that my thoughts on summer scouting have, have, I don't know if shifted, but I was a very overeager summer scouter earlier in my whitetail career where now I am much more of a summer scouting is kind of fun, but I'm not going to put too much weight on it because a lot changes from the summer to the fall. Not that you can't learn things. You certainly can. But I'll say one thing that I do pay particular attention to in the summer is who's here. There's no better time to find out who's here than in the summer because in the summer, these bucks, especially mature bucks, are more visible than most other times of the year. Now, I do know a lot of us have seen that a lot of these bucks will shift their ranges from summer to fall, sometimes just a couple hundred acres away, sometimes miles away. So I never get too committed to the bucks I see. But it's a nice, if you go out there on an August night, glass of bean field, that's going to give you a general idea of like the quality of deer, the possible age structure of bucks in the general area. So if I am coming to a new area and I'm trying to figure out, is this piece of public worth hunting? Is this corner of this state worth hunting? Go out, glass some fields, and you can get a pretty good idea of, yeah, this has the kind of stuff I'm looking for or no. And again, don't get too tied to the specific deer you see. But hey, if you see a bunch of three and four-year-old bucks, in my eyes, okay, hey, this area can produce that kind of deer. Uh, I'm interested in this zone. Uh, On the flip side, if I'm hunting a place that I have hunted many times before, like some of my Michigan spots, summer scouting for me is often about, is that buck that I watched the last two years still alive? And if I can find that buck again, and if history tells me he'll, you know, he'll show back up in October and start being in the area I can hunt, I will search the surrounding zone. So even if he doesn't live on the property that I hunt in the summer, I'll drive the roads in the evenings to try to find him in a bean field or a clover field, you know, within a couple mile radius. And if I can just confirm that, yes, that deer's still around, then I can start putting the wheels in motion to, you know, take all that historical knowledge I have of him and develop a plan this year. If you have no confirmation that he survived, it's a lot harder to start making specific plans and, you know, setting up things for that deer. If you know that, yes, that deer's around and yes, I know exactly what he was doing last year and the year before. Now there's something to work with. So that's, that's something I look for in the summer. Tony. Uh, I kind of want to play off that a little bit. I I still really like summer scouting, but I like it because, you know, kind of Hayden alluded to this a little bit. Like you got to think about, you know, what can you see now that matters in a couple months, right? And so I tend to focus pretty hard on food right now, you know, for like the easy stuff, which is like, okay, if there's a soybean field on a place I can hunt, I know what that means to me, right? But I also know what those food sources mean to the other hunters. Cause I'm going to be sharing these spots with other people. You know, a lot of them are public, a lot of them are pressured. And so, you know, if you were on a private place that you had sewed up, you'd look at that soybean field and go, man, I can make a opening weekend plan around this. If you're on public land or you're, you know, other people are going to be there. You're like, okay, this is probably where the pressure is going to be concentrated. And so I look at that and go, where's, where's the next layer back that I can play off of these food sources to just take advantage of the fact that those, those deer are probably going to get pressured quick. Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to. I was just going to say, uh, you keep going. Because what I'm going to ask is is related to what you need to wrap up on. So in that, you know, we, we talk a lot about the destination food sources. And then you get into hard and soft mass and checking that out now. And just kind of making a plan for the fact that the whitetails are going to live off their stomachs. And, you know, we know that. And I, I like that part about it. But I like the fact that it helps me sort of envision what I'm going to be de- dealing with deer-wise 
and people wise. Like the, the food is the key to everything, you know, and, and you can kind of tie it into hunters being addicted to being able to see a long ways and have easy sits. And you can just use that to inform and go, okay, I'm probably not going to really, this, this bean field isn't going to play into my hunting strategy the way it might somebody else's, but it's going to lead me to that staging area that I scouted in March, or it's going to, it's going to lead me to something a little bit different because I can just, I can make an educated guess on probably what's going to happen around those food sources. The one thing I was going to say is, would you agree that how someone values the summer food sources they scout how they value it should be dependent on when their opening day is. Because understanding a summer food source matters a whole lot to me. If I, if, I have, if I have a September 1st opener, it's less valuable to me, in my opinion, if I have an October 1st opener. Yeah, it depends what you have. So if you, and, and this, is, this is coming from a place of experience, but you know, if you have a cornfield, you know, people who've hunted around corn know that's a different thing to hunt in September versus October and November. Beans are the same thing. Alfalfa can be kind of the same thing. And so, yeah, you, you kind of do have to factor that in. But that's that's also taken into account, you know, are you, are you you know, if you have that September 1 opener, your, your plan's going to be around that food. But again, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter. If you're in New York or you're in Iowa and you have a little later opener, yeah, the, the bean field will look different than it does in, you know, North Dakota on a September 1 opener or Nebraska but the same rules apply. Like if there's a, if there's a easy destination food source there that, that people are going to believe the deer are going to hit, they're going to hunt it the same way. Probably. I mean, the, the, the pressure concentration will probably be the same thing. The deer might be using it a little bit differently or a lot differently. Yeah. I think that's the key thing. You're right. The, yeah. the hunters will probably approach it the same way that the key things remembering that the deer yeah. will probably operate differently. Yeah. And it, we should say something too. You mentioned the summer range versus fall range. And we should say like, that's not, it's a, that's a weird one. Cause it's not a guarantee that they're going to move. Right. You know, like sometimes you see them June, July, August, mm-hmm. and September, they're right there. And sometimes you get those transient deer that seem to show up and some of your bucks disappear. And I like, I'm sure somebody studied that. I don't know why it happens, but if you're on a buck and you know, it's, it's July or August and you're thinking like, oh, man, I hope this dude doesn't move. They're like, there's no guarantees going anywhere. He might be right there. So from my experience, very unscientific, 100% anecdotal, if I had to put like a rough number on it, just from from some of the properties that I watch obsessively over the years and have seen it over and over and over again on, you know, various private chunks in Michigan and other states, about half of the bucks maybe on average disappear, half stick around. So usually when I go into a new season, I'm bet, if there's two big bucks on that farm in the summer that I'm watching, I'm going to kind of assume, yeah, probably one of them is going to stick around. One will probably disappear. Yeah. That's my general rule of thumb. Is that kind of in line with what you've seen? Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's it's a 50-50 chance. So I would say don't be wed to those bucks, but at the same time, don't ignore them. Yeah. So that's a good point. My biggest concern, if I'm like summer scouting something, since most of what I haunt is either public land or private land that's shared permission with two or three other guys is the presence of other hunters. Especially a lot of states have laws around how long you can keep tree stands up. South Dakota is one of them. If I was on a piece of public land in South Dakota, scouting it in July, knowing that tree stands aren't allowed to be there, but I run into like three other tree stands, that's really concerning. And and although I could run into a lot of great other sign, rubs and scrapes, if, if there's two tree stands on each side of it, I'm no longer interested. Same thing with trail cameras, um, it, it's like not, uh, a low investment for somebody to go out and hang five trail cameras in July when the weather sucks and there's ticks out. 
um, and it's super humid. So if I'm finding trail cameras on some shared piece of private, again, I'm, I'm not super interested because I know if, if there's pressure there now, there's going to be pressure there this fall. Yeah, great point. Now, here's a situation I want to run past you guys, which is one that I find myself debating internally when I see it. And it just happened to me. I was scouting some public land the other weekend, and I got out there, and there was a whole bunch of permanent sets on public land. So someone from neighboring private had went back into the public and set up stands as if they own it, but it's public land. And dozens of them, I mean tons of stands. So you see all those stands, you think, geez, this thing's getting pounded. But then at the same time, you think, okay, you know, how many of these are gun stands? Like, how much do you think about, are these guys going to be your opening weekend when I'm going to hunt? Or like the second week of October when I'm going to hunt? Versus are all these things set up and they're just getting pounded during gun season? Like in some states, you're going to have 600,000 hunters out for gun season, while you might only have 100,000 out during bow season. So sometimes I'm sitting there thinking that, oh, geez, it looks like the whole world's here. But if I just write the place off the map and assume that, Maybe on October 7th through the 12th, there's zero people out there. And I would have had the run of the place all the way till November 15th or whatever opening day is in whatever state. Uh, I'm constantly going back and forth on that. And I think that's something that Tony specifically has opened the eyes of myself. And I think a lot of people who are familiar with his work that um, when a lot of folks are at home in like early to mid-October, Tony's out there killing bucks every year, multiple deer. Um, so I, I think that can be an option in that case. Right. But yeah, showing up there for the rut, like the first week in November or gun opener around Thanksgiving, probably not a good situation. Yeah. What would you add, Tony? Uh, I would add that that might be my biggest pet peeve on public land. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so common. Like, I don't know what, you know, like I, everybody here has experience out there on public land and it's like the compliance rate with tree stand laws it just seems low, man. It just seems low. Yeah. And I, I do you know, kind of like you, you bring up a good point, Mark. Like I, I'll go in, you know, say I'm hunting like the big woods of Wisconsin and I'm on public dirt there and I'll, I'll look at stands and go, you, you can look at them and pretty much go, that's a, that's a bow stand. That's a gun stand. You know what I mean? Like you can just tell if somebody drove a side by side in there and threw up a double, you know, ladder stand, like you're like, okay. I know, I know when that dude's coming in. Right. But if you, if you're on a little river crossing and you see that hang on stand up 20 feet, you go, okay, now this guy and I would probably be rubbing elbows. And I just, I hate that claiming public land mentality. And it happened. I mean, you know, the, you deal with it in the Southwest on the water holes, it's prevalent. And just for me, when I look at that, I go, I just try to make a decision. Like maybe I, maybe I can hunt here October 5th, or maybe I can hunt here weekday mornings, or maybe I'm just going somewhere else. Cause it seems like the saturation point's real high. But like you said, you don't really know till you get in there. If you, if you go into a place and your spidey senses say, man, that's a bow stand, that's a bow stand, that's a bow stand, that's a bow stand. You might just be like, okay, it's time to either go way deeper or go somewhere else. But maybe, you know, maybe it is a bunch of gun stands. You don't know. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Sometimes, like you said, you got to test the waters, see what happens, and adjust, and uh, not much more you can do from that. Uh, what about this one? Uh, related to something you brought up, which is the Big Woods uh, scenario up in Wisconsin. Someone here, uh, Ace, I don't know, Ace Agron, maybe, would be how you, you say this. Uh, he wants to know how you would approach summer scouting in the Big Woods 
where there's little to no ag to glass, right? I mean, I can sit here and preach about glass and bean fields. That's pretty easy. Uh, what if you don't have that? We published an article last fall on TheMeatEater.com that was written by Dylan Tramp, who haunts the Black Hills in South Dakota a lot. And for the article, he interviewed Bo Martonic, who haunts the big timber of Pennsylvania a lot. So together, they have like really good perspectives on hunting big woods. A couple things they talked about. Um, one was the edge effect that you want to look for that can come from a change in vegetation, um, a change in where timber's been harvested, um, a, a change in where there's a meadow. The edge effects that also will attract like varmints and songbirds will also attract deer. And so edge effect, according to Bo and Dylan, who have killed a lot of big woods deer, are really, really important. Something else that that Bo had talked about, how um, just a little bit of sign usually isn't enough for him because deer can sort of aimlessly travel through big woods. He wants a cluster of sign, like community scrapes, rubs, um, all the indicators that we love. And that's going to show them where, where buck are more than likely betting. So those are two things in the big woods from the perspective of Dylan Tramp, a Western big woods hunter, and Bo Martonic, an Eastern big woods hunter have. I like it. I think I also remember talking with Bo on our podcast a handful of months ago, and they were talking about summer trail cameras and that being you know another really key point part of their summer scouting since they can't glass fields. They need some kind of eyes in the woods. And so... They ran a lot of summer trail cameras near those edges, and then, if I remember right, one of the key things they talked about was using scrapes, even in the summer, as a key location to get those summer pictures. Because, as we've talked about a lot, while deer might not necessarily scuff up the dirt on those scrapes like they do during the fall, they still visit them all through the year, and they hit those licking branches. They're sniffing them, they're leaving scent. Those are still a destination. So I've seen the same thing with my summer cameras in ag country, and I think it's a, a, maybe of disproportionate importance in the big woods. What about you, Tony, given your experience up there? Well, first off, I would just say, like, I th- personally think that focusing on big woods bucks is the hardest thing out there. Like, as far as my whitetail experience, is no joke. You know, I mean, you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday with the deer density problem of just, like, keeping your head in the yeah, game. Yeah, That's a big there's a, there's a psychological aspect of this is tough to overcome, but you know Bo Bo knows what he's talking about, and you know you think about a scrape in the big woods, that's that's a communication device for those deer. They're not gonna establish a community scrape somewhere where there's only one deer passing through every three weeks, and so you you really start to see this like this concentration of deer idea play out. In it, everywhere you scout, it's easy to find in Iowa. It's not as easy to find that concentration in the big woods, but it exists. And so it is a sign thing. And, you know, you, like the, the question was like little to no egg. Like there's a big difference there. If there's one egg field to work with within a couple of miles where you're hunting, like inventory is pretty easy to take. If you have no egg, then yeah, you got to get into that soft edge situation. And the, the one other thing that I really like about it, the big woods scouting is if it's if there's some up and down to the terrain, then you you've usually got some creeks to work with. You've usually got some you know funnels and pinch points that are going to play in all year round. They're not just rut, you know, like not just rut spots. They're just like point A to B spots. You know, even if the the movement seems a little more random, which I kind of think it is in you know could probably tied to a browse situation. Might be tied to the predator 
prevalence, but there are there are aspects of deer hunting that are just universal. They're just ubiquitous. They're just harder to find in the big woods and harder to stick to because you got a low density, big, like it just kind of like an elky type of situation to deal with. It's just harder to pin down. Yeah. It's uh like we were saying, it's it's one of those weird scenarios where it's really tricky, but also seems really appealing to try to tackle that challenge. You know, I mean, we, I've, I've talked about that, that on my Idaho area, how I'm torn between hunting the big woods, mountains, bucks, mountain bucks, where I might see zero to two deer a day, but it'd be really awesome to figure one of those out. Or I could go hunt some river bottom stuff and deal with a bunch of other people, but see tons and tons of deer. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that. You, it's it's so easy to default to what you're comfortable with. And so we just, we go like, you know, kind of back to the food source thing. Like it's easy to go sit. A, like it, it doesn't take a lot of mental horsepower to be like, I should sit on the edge of this field. It's hard to get comfortable in low density, big wood situations because it's just like the second guessing the the self doubt comes in all the time. But the more experience you spend there and, you know, like the more time you dedicate to scouting, you do see those, those spots where you're like, this is, this is a place that has promise throughout the season. Yeah. Uh, scouting and pressuring deer. We had a question here from Deer Dreaming. He says, where's the proper balance between scouting and overpressuring a property? And this is, I think, a different question depending on the time of the year, but we're talking summer right now. So let's talk summer. Uh, how do we worry about scouting in the summer versus pressuring those deer in the summer? I'll, I'll lead off here a little bit and say that I am certainly less concerned about it in the summer than I would be at other times of the year. So I will go and induce some obtrusive things in the summer that I know are going to impact deer today and maybe over the next couple of weeks, but I don't care as much because I'm not hunting for three or four months. But I will tell you that I do those obtrusive things early in the summer and not late. So in June, I might be going in there and messing around in a bedding area to get that one tree prepped. But in late August, I'm staying the hell out. Basically, for me in my private land spots, I look at August 31st as the last day I will do anything on those properties and then leave at least a full month of leaving them untouched. Now, these are farms I know, so I don't need to do last-minute scouting or checking. I can observe them from afar, that kind of thing. So I, I worry about summer impacts you know, in that range, like September. But July, early August, I'll go work on a tree stand. I will finish a food plot. I'll move trial cameras. But I will tell you when it comes to cameras in scouting in the summer, I used to be the very overeager trail camera user in the summer where I was just so excited to see what bucks are here. And I want to go in. Like, I remember the first cameras I put up, you know, three days later, I got to go check them, got to see what's there. And then very quickly you realize that when you're in there doing that so often, you're, you're educating these deer. So now I, I'll set cameras in the summer and I won't come back for at least a month because, you know, Every time you visit, that does neg- negatively impact your chances of those, especially mature bucks that we're looking for, to come in there and, and visit that location. So if you want to get pictures to learn about the deer that are there, to get inventory, leave them alone. That is a clear impact of how you could overpressure those deer. It might not impact your ability to kill them in November, but it will impact your ability to get more pictures of them. And in the summer, that's that's something that I do like to get. So so that's that's a little bit of what I think about in the summer. Tony? Uh, I kind of take a different approach now. It, well, let me put it this way. If you have a spot where you don't, you, you have the ability to sit back and let it, let it simmer for a while, you should do that. 
Like there's no reason to put unnecessary pressure on there. But I, I've just seen like traveling to a bunch of different states, hunting public land, like how often, you know, when you show up, you've done your e-scouting, but you've never seen it in person. You got to just burn through there. Maybe you're carrying a stand or you're going to go saddle up, but you're, you're scouting first to find a place to hunt. And I've walked into so many spots where I've just looked around and been like, man, there, the sign is here. And you, you know, you're like, okay, this is the tree. I'm going to, oh no, that one doesn't work. And you're walking around and you're, you're leaving a mark, you know, but you go, you sit at that night or you come back the next morning and those deer come through there. And I always think like, I think they can tolerate a lot of pressure, like a lot more than we think. It's just that this balance of like, don't take that as an excuse to just be cavalier and just go in there, like have a plan. And you know, what, what's the reward? Like, what are you, what are you hoping to learn? Like, is, is this going to happen or not? You know, don't just go in, like you said, like checking the cameras. Sure. It's fun, but do you need to check them every three days? No, like, you know, you don't need to do that stuff, but if there's something to learn or like you just have to, because of whatever's coming up in the season, I say, just get in there. Yeah. Uh, either one of you guys add anything else? Messing up during the summer doesn't concern me a whole lot. Like there'll be instances where I go as far as if I'm setting a trail camera in a very vegetated area, I'll carry like an electric weed eater in with me rather than picking up sticks and getting slivers and bushwhacking like that. I'll take a weed eater with me and I, I don't care if I'm doing that in June. But if I'm hunting a state like South Dakota has a September one opener, it's, it's, I think it's important, Mark, to have sort of those deadlines. Like, okay, July 31st is the last time that I'm going to sort of mess around in here. But if I'm hunting a state like Illinois that has like an October 1st archery opener, then you can screw around till like mid-August, late August. So I think having those deadlines in mind is, is like a good thing to sort of uh, give yourself. Yeah. And I think all, and sorry, Hayden, I jumped down, jumped on you there. I was just going to add that a lot of this also can depend a little bit and be different a little bit based on where you're hunting, right? Like what these deer tolerate differs by location. We've seen this a thousand times, Tony. We were in Iowa together a couple months ago and it was like, okay, the deer here are going to tolerate a wildly different amount of activity than what they will deal with back in Pennsylvania or Michigan. Um, I mean, it's sometimes like you're hunting different species close to it. Um, so you got to kind of know your zone, know where you're at and adjust accordingly. And the only way to figure those differences out is to travel to different places, feel it out, learn how these deer operate differently, um, and then adjust your strategy based on, okay, what's my deer craziness factor here? How crazy are they? Are they on eggshells or are they chilling out like they're listening to Bob Marley and just hanging? Are they rolling like Hayden? <laughs> I feel like you would be a very easy deer to kill, Hayden. Uh, if, oh, if you were wow. a buck. Yeah, I, I just Jeez, get the vibe. Man. Like He would roll through. Kind of head in the clouds, jamming to some music. You got a dip in his lip. Food and girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't think you'd be ready for me. <laughs> I don't think any deer is ready for you, Mark Kenyon. <laughs> the, uh, w- one thing I want to add is uh, particularly in the, uh, as it gets to like midsummer, I try and centralize all my pressure in kind of like hits. Like I like to mm. go in there, cut the lanes, hang the stands. Uh, set up the cams in like one or two days if I can, and then just get out. And then towards the end of the summer, I start relying a lot on cellular cameras because that is just, I mean, if you can afford them, it's just such a great low impact way to be, to like scratch that itch where you're not going back in and checking all these cameras, particularly, like I said, in the smaller properties that I tend to hunt, 
you know, that's been a really good, because you'll have landowners coming in, taking walks with their dog and like blowing everything out. I also like to try and time it. So if there's like, uh, if I know it's going to rain a whole bunch the next week and we're expecting storms, I try and get in there before the storm. So that big disruption and all that, all that precipitation comes down and minimize a little bit of the impact. One property that I hunt in Pennsylvania has a crazy party every year where like 200 folks descend and camp on this property. And I try and get everything done right before that. Cause these deer know that this place gets kind of blown out every year and it makes the impact of what I did less contextually. I think that's super, super smart. And something I think about too, I'd much rather like, if you know, there's a shit storm that's about to happen, blend into that storm. So even, even in season, I think about that. So for example, um, when harvest is happening, so if you've got a property that's being harvested and you've got five farmers in there, trucks rolling around, combines going all over, people getting out and yelling at each other, if I know there's going to be this couple days of chaos, and there's nothing I can do about it, it's happening no matter what, I'm going to get a bunch of junk done and blend into that, get a little extra scouting in, check some cameras that maybe I was afraid to go to otherwise. If I had to move something, today's the day to do it. Uh, take advantage of those disturbances and, you know, that's happening no matter what. So your little extra is not going to make much of a difference. Take advantage of that. I think deer see enough that they get less suspicious of big events like that. And they yeah. get more suspicious of what they perceive as like a lingering presence kind of like coming yeah. and going throughout the span of like months. Yeah. I think that's an astute observation, Hayden. A couple things to plug before we move on. This is sort of uh, something we've, we've danced around talking about this. Uh, Mark just recently wrote an article for the media.com called the fool's gold of deer scouting. That talks about how summer scouting can sometimes do you more harm than good or be a waste of time. And then when we talked about the big woods, um, that article that I referenced with Bo Martonic and Dylan tramp was called how to hunt whitetails in big woods, which we published last fall. Two good things uh, that would give you more information than what we just covered. I love it when you do that, Spencer. I'll do it throughout. He's very it. subtle, isn't he? I love it. I love it. Uh, so we got a question from Chalupa Batman. Best name of the day. <laughs> and it's, it's about this very topic you bring up, Spencer. He says he lives up in northeast Michigan, and he asks, when doing your summer scouting, how does that impact where you put your stands or blinds knowing that fall patterns may change and that you're scouting afterwards, you know, you're What's he trying to say here? It's not quite written too clearly. Uh, and after your scouting, do you stay off the prowl? I see. So he says, how does your summer scouting impact where you put your stands, knowing that the fall ranges and patterns will probably be different? And then after you're done with your summer scouting, do you stay off completely to not pressure those deer? So we kind of answered the second part. Basically, at least from my perspective, I try to make sure I do nothing more after the end of August in Michigan, where he's at. Um but to his first question, how does my summer scouting impact where I place stands for the fall? So we, we've kind of talked around this. We've alluded to various parts of it, but I'll just say explicitly in Michigan, where we have an October 1st opener, summer scouting is not influencing where I hang my trail cameras or my tree stands, other than something like what Tony said, which is if I see a bunch of new tree stands up in the summer, or if there's a neighbor who all of a sudden has trail cameras all over my edge and I can see it all, that would influence me. If if I get like a human insight during the summer, that will influence where I'm going to hunt and push me away from that possibly. Um, but the stuff that's going to impact where I place my cameras is going to be intel that I gained either in the spring scouting when I can see sign from the previous fall or from, if I'm in an area that I know, from his, from historical observations. 
where a deer travels on July 31st, in my mind, in Michigan, is not going to be tied almost at all to how they're going to operate on October 1st or November 4th. It might be a little bit. Like understanding that, yes, there's a cornfield here. Understand that, yes, there's a soybean here. And, and, and know that at some point in October or November, they will use those things. Understanding the basic habitat ter- terrain, all those types of things that will be there no matter what, that still matters. But I'm just not going to be wedded to, well, this big buck showed up three nights in a row on October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, so I'm going to set up in that corner he popped out on. No, I'm not buying into that. But I do want to know, like, okay, this is where a food source is, and maybe there's a food source that right now I'm scouting in the summer. Maybe there's a oak tree with some acorns loaded down. They're not feeding on those in August, but I can see them in August, and I can say, all right, I know those are here now. This tree's producing. These other trees aren't producing. I know that in October that tree is going to be dropping acorns. I can key in on that. So that's the kind of summer scouting that I'm going to pay attention to. Um, I, I think that's what I'd say. I think one of the most underrated parts of summer scouting is that a lot of the things that make a spot appealing to deer in August is also going to be appealing to them in December or January. So a lot of my best setups for like September 1st that are sort of hunting a food source and there's water nearby and they have good cover are also things that deer are going to be looking for December 15th. So a lot of my setups look the same in early season in late season. And so I think even if you're in a state like Michigan that has an opener in October, that doesn't really do you any good. Know what the deer are doing in August. It might tune you into what they're going to be doing uh, around like Christmas. So you're saying from a food source perspective, food source perspective, good cover, whether they're trying to get away from hot weather or cold weather, uh, and then just having good water there. The water, water in July is going to be limiting like it will be in December. Interesting. I would say the one thing that I would tell you from my experience, at least in the Midwest where I'm at, that's very different, is where, and this isn't a rule, but oftentimes I'm seeing and experiencing bucks bedding in very different places in the summer versus later in the fall. Because in the summer when they've got two different things going on. Number one, they're dealing with warm temperatures and a lot of bugs. And so it seems like your bigger bucks are going to be moving more towards like big open canopy places with lots of shade, but they want some wind. They want to get away from bugs maybe a little bit. And they've got these big velvet antlers that are very tender and fragile. And so, and I can't say I've sat and watched hundreds of hours of bucks operating in the summer. So I'm sure there's deer that do the opposite of what I'm going to tell you. But it seems like if bucks were getting into the nasty, gnarly, thick shit that they bet in in November, if they were doing that in July, they'd be tearing up the velvet on their antlers and having all sorts of different antler injuries and deformities and stuff all the time. I think they avoid the thickest, nastiest, gnarliest stuff at least a little bit more in the summer than they do in the fall. So if, if like so many times, the bucks that I see in the summer that come out to the bean fields, they're coming out of the big open stuff, come out to these bean fields, and they will come from a totally different place in October or November because now they're relocating to the nastiest, gnarliest, scratchiest cover. And there's a lot more leaf cover in the summer than there is in November. So that those things all shift. Um, so that's one that's one thing to think about. Yeah, I would I would say you kind of have to look at this when we talk about you know, summer scouting and how it translates to where you're going to hang your stands or where you should hang your stands, where you should hunt. What are you talking about? Are you talking about a trail camera on a field edge? Are you talking about long range glassing? Or are you talking about getting in there and looking at trails, looking at tracks? Because there's a lot of difference. And so 
Yeah, that that field edge movement you watch in the summer, maybe it doesn't mean much to you if you have an October 1 opener, but the creek crossing, you know, 400 yards back in the woods, that's probably a season-long deer travel route. And where the the thing that matters the most, like we talk about food and we we talk about a lot of different stuff, but sometimes it just boils down to where deer like to walk. And if they like to walk, you know, through this gate or this fence, the go over this fence crossing at this spot, in June, deer will probably do that in October. You know, if they cross the river here because it's the shallowest spot for 400 yards in each direction, you know, like that's that's actionable. So if you're, it, you know, it, it, it depends how you're thinking about it and how you're scouting. Like it, the, the worst kind of scouting right now is to go in and walk around through everything and get into the nettles and the ticks and the mosquitoes. But some of the most actionable intel you find is a pounded trail or that fence crossing. And so you have to just think about what are you looking for and what, like how much weight does that carry in a couple months? I think that's the key is when you're scouting, and this is something at any time of the year I think is very helpful, but, and this is something I've preached for so long, so it's probably annoying, but always ask why. Don't just see a thing and be like, oh yeah, all right, there's a pounded trail here. Check. This is where I'm going to hunt. If you see a pounded trail on July 4th or whatever, okay, there's the pounded trail. Now ask why. Why is that happening now? Is this happening now? First off, is this fresh? Okay, yes, this is fresh. Okay, why is this happening right now? And then think through, okay, well, let me think. This trail's moving, coming from that area, and it's going to this field, and okay, that field is a green alfalfa field. Okay, they're feeding there. So that would make sense why they're pounded. And then I'm going to think, okay, so when's my opener? My opener is September 15th. Is that alfalfa field typically getting fed on in the middle of September? Well, yeah, I've, I've seen some deer feeding that still in September. Okay, that, this is something that they're doing now, and they're probably still going to do it in September because I know that that's why this pounded trail is here. Check. Now this is something that's actionable for me in a hunting perspective. But there might be other scenarios where you'll find something and you say, so why is this happening? And, oh, it's because of this one thing. It's because my neighbor puts out a bunch of salt lakes all summer. So that's why there's this pounded trail here. And I know, though, it's Iowa that I'm in, and they have to remove all those things before hunting season. That's not going to be here during the hunting season, blah, blah, blah. Now, they'll probably still visit it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe then that's obviously not going to factor into your hunting. So just look at sign, look at what deer are doing, and ask, why are they doing it? Try to think that through. And you're not always going to have the answers to those questions, but that little thought exercise can help. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. 
Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Next question. Um, let's see here. What's your opinion? This is from D. Bowers. What's your opinion on why deer shed their velvet when they do? I've noticed one area, 75% are hard-horned, but for miles to the north, probably only 10% were. I'm very perplexed by such a stark difference. Well, I mean, I think we could all answer this question like the science from it. Uh, Spencer, you feel like you want to jump on this? Yeah, so uh, photo period is number one factor, similar to when we talk about the rut. Like, the number one factor of when the rut is going to occur is the amount of day length. Same thing with shedding velvet. Now, what could change that and and what sometimes does or what people notice is an extreme stressor. And I want to like stress the word extreme because the people that have talked about this before observed it. They don't mean like a drought of like 10 days. They mean a drought of like all summer or something like that or uh, a really long extended period of, of heat around the time that they're becoming hard horn. So it's, it's not even really an opinion. Like that's just sort of the answer. There we go. Do we need any more than that? (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, Mr. Bowers or Mrs. Bowers or whoever this is, uh, also had another question on the front that I got to ask Spencer about because it's Dakota specific. Uh, and Tony, you can speak to this because you spend a lot of time in the Dakotas. What are the main crops that deer like to eat in the Dakotas besides, uh, he wrote besides deer and soybeans, <laughs> but I think he meant corn and soybeans. Uh, <laughs> so what are they eating here just besides corn and soybeans? And do they really eat wheat? Anything. They'll, they'll eat any like big egg. And as far as the question goes, is like, do they eat wheat? Wheat is a preferred food choice for them. They love wheat, but there, there can be a difference in from one type of wheat to the next, specifically with ons. National Deer Association has talked about this before. Ons are those like long, stiff, hair-like structures on the end of the wheat where the seeds are. If the type of wheat that you're hunting around has these ons, it's much less preferred than a type of wheat that does not have the ons. So ons bad, no ons good. It's also been my experience that how old 
the wheat is will impact how uh, preferential it is. Have you seen that? It's like That's young. tied to what he's saying. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I think I think deer will eat it like from the time it comes out of the ground till like the day before it gets harvested. So I, I think wheat is sort of a preferred food source year long. Anything else you add, Tony? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, cereal grains, when you're dealing with those, the fresher, the better, the younger, the better. But also when you're starting to deal with like North Dakota whitetails, you might be dealing with the only egg around. It depends where you're at in the state, right? You know, if you're out West where I like to hunt, there might be one field, you know? And so even if it was maybe not, it wouldn't be as high of a priority for the deer because they have more options in Eastern North Dakota. If you get out where they have fewer options, pretty easy play to make. Which is similar to the scenario you described, like Big Woods. Same thing, right? If it's a limited resource, it's the only ice cream truck in town. They're hitting it. Uh, All right. Let's move on to some other stuff. Uh, Have any of you guys backpack hunted for whitetails? No, I've come awful close. Yeah. I have not either, but I've wanted to. Someone asked if backpack camping to hunt is actually doable. Obviously, it's doable because a lot of people do it for other big game, and I've done it for other big game. Uh, so totally could be done. This guy or girl wants to hike into a North Carolina park and camp overnight to head over to hunt public lands nearby. But beyond stashing gear, I'm wondering if it's actually something that could be done as far as scent control is concerned. And my take on this is, yeah, go for it. Um, you know, we've done something very similar. I know most of us have done this car camping and hiking in and taking in a heavy backpack and hunting deep in public land and getting stinky and sweaty and hot. And you just run with it. Scent control becomes, a, you know, not a reality you can really play off of when you're doing that kind of hunt. And people still kill deer that way. We've all killed deer that way. So my take is that really play the wind damn well. Do your very best with the wind and know that you're not going to be perfect. And the reason why scent control is a thing for a lot of whitetail hunters is because different than a lot of Western hunters who do backpack in, we can control the scenarios more often. And you're never going to 100% fool them, right? I'm just, my take has always been minimal, minimize the variables that are in con- your control as much as possible. So if I can reduce my scent profile a little bit, I'm not going to win all the time, but I might get away with just a little bit more. And every one of those little bit mores does help. When you're backpack hunting or you're camping out of your truck, hunting public land, embrace the stink, play the wind like a savant, uh, I will tell you that sometimes I, I still spray down. I don't know if it does anything at that point, but it makes me feel slightly better. And it kind of feels good spraying yourself down with like a water sprayer on like a hot September day when you're heading in. And then every couple of days, I usually dump some water over my head and just take like a hillbilly shower behind the truck, if anything, to feel better and to get the very worst of the stink off of you. Um, and then, you know, I have had some scenarios where I brought like an ozone bag and ran my clothes through that. And that maybe helps a little bit too. Again, it's not going to account for all the smell on me still, but I'll do that. I'll leave my clothes hanging out on a branch, that type of deal. All of this maybe helps 2%, 3%, 4%. Um, I don't get too concerned though. What's the scenario where you almost did this, Tony? Uh, I'm some really big national grassland situations. So I found I found some bucks in North Dakota one time that were, way far away from the road and so i thought about just packing in with a bivy pack and one stand and just sleeping with them just to just to make the logistics of the whole thing easier and i just ended up not part part of the reason i didn't do it is because when i was planning to do it the year that i came out there where i'm like i'm gonna 
this is probably going to be it. They had built some oil well roads <laughs> that made access way easier. So it changed the entire dynamic of the situation changed, but it's always been in the back of my mind that that's a, that would be a really cool way to do it. Like it's totally doable. And it, you know, like to, to kind of piggyback on what Mark said there, I would say it's almost relieving to go on a hunt where you know you have no control over scent. It's, it's, it's just, it's a not like you, you have nothing you can do. So we, we hunt so many of these early openers for velvet whitetails and you're in a tent and we've had days where it's like, it doesn't get below 80 at night. And so you're just a disgusting person. Like you, you have nothing you can do. And so you just go, okay, that's, that's out of my hands. I'm going to play the wind. I'm going to hunt. I'm going to do everything I can to hunt the way I want to hunt and play this wind and just know they get downwind of me, their heads are going to explode because they're, it's going to be disgusting. Yeah. Just own it. Yeah. And try to play around it. All right. Um, the Meanderthal, great name, asks, uh, what are your tactics for hunting open country with little tree cover and deep ravines? Hunting in eastern Colorado and the old bucks lounge, feed, and sleep in the deep ravines, and they seldom leave. They've stumped me two years in a row by leaving the cut randomly at all hours of day and night and reappearing in a different spot each day. So this is the kind of thing you could experience in eastern Colorado for whitetails. I've seen this in Nebraska. I've seen this in the Dakotas. Um, I've seen this in Montana. I've seen this in Idaho. I know that you two at least have seen this in similar states, Spencer and uh, Tony. I don't know, Hayden, if you've hunted the western whitetails yet, have you? No, not no. too much. Man. So in that kind of open country, and this could even apply to, you know, there's somewhat similar stuff in Kansas. There's somewhat similar stuff in parts of Oklahoma. I mean, a lot of open country whitetail stuff we could talk about here. Uh, if we had to have a metaphorical arm wrestling match between Spencer and Tony, and who's better at killing <laughs> open country whitetails, who would win? I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a bad answer and a good answer here. The bad answer is pick up a rifle. I knew he was going to go that's there. A terrible yeah. answer. <laughs> like, like the margin for error when you don't have to be 15 yards away and you can be 300 yards away makes it a hell of a lot easier to kill an open country buck. So that's my bad answer. And I've killed a lot of open country bucks with a rifle. So I, I would say uh, I'm a better... Uh, open country gun hunter than Tony. No, but, but no question. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What's your good answer? The good answer is we published an article last fall <laughs> on the meateater.com written by Tony Peterson called How to Kill a Whitetail Buck in CRP. It may not be the perfect um, solution to what this hunter in eastern Colorado is dealing with, but it's going to be very similar. So I would encourage anybody who is uh, struggling with open country whitetails to go to the meateater.com and check out that article. So that scenario, this is, this is like so common for whitetail hunters, right? He's, he's focusing on, or this person's focusing on kind of like what, what's working against him, right? Like, okay, this is hard. There's a randomness to this. They're showing up wherever they're, they're staying low. And it's like, that's all the things that are working against you. But what do you have when you hunt open country, like Spence, you know, this first off, like you have some things working for you. You have visibility, Right, you can probably pay more attention long range, glass those deer better than almost any other scenario. You know, like you, you take somebody like down in the southeast, and they're like, "Oh my god, I'd love to see deer once in a while." <laughs> other than like being right on top of them, so you have that. And when you have those ravines, there, that's a tough scenario. It just is because to get in and get out, it's usually tight. But those deer that I've seen, they can, they almost, 
give themselves away browsing a lot of times. So you, you know, you usually think in open country, you're going to find them bedded and you might, you know, but you also see them kind of concentrate on these food sources too, in these areas. And so that's, that's like a smaller advantage than the visibility thing. But the, the other advantage I'd say focus on is those ravines funnel movement. Like they go up and down them. There's certain places where they cross. Like you can find trails really etched into that stuff, that, that kind of terrain a lot of times. And then you got to find the ambush point. Like how do you, you know, you, do you gilly up and get in there? That That's the hard part. But at least you can usually pin down, even if it seems random, like, okay, I'm following this buck today and he's a, a mile away. But then two days later, you see another buck take the same route. Like there's not as much randomness maybe there as it seems like. And so it's just trying to like use that observation to your advantage and then pin down where you can, you can catch them slipping. So one other idea to think about, uh, and and we kind of did this on a Nebraska hunt I had a few years ago is to your point, you do have visibility in your favor, but uh, many of these open country type terrains, they've got some roll to them. They've got cuts, they've got ravines, there's ups and downs. So while it's open country, there's also a lot of hidden country within it. So take advantage of that. One idea here is, is don't get tied to any one place, play it on the ground, watch for what the random movement of the day of the day is, and then make a move on them. Almost hunt these deer. Like you might hunt pronghorn on the ground with a bow, see them and then drop into a cut, move in and try to get ahead of them. I think there's a lot of opportunity in places to do that type of thing. I'm imagining the type of habitat he's in with some of these ravines and coolies and stuff in Eastern Colorado. And I bet you that could work really well. I think this is definitely less over the last five years with some of the media coming out. We're seeing that ground hunting can work for whitetails. So I think it's much less taboo than it was a decade ago. But still, I think there's a lot of us, especially those of us that live further east, that are really tied to our trees. And in certain situations, there's no reason to believe it can't work until you try it. And this might be one of those worth trying. What's next, Hayden? You got any question here you really like? Yeah, I do. Uh, Josh Arm says, I have $1,000 to spend on some quality gear for deer season. What should I get? $1,000 for gear. What should I get? I mean, okay. We're we're contractually <laughs> obligated <laughs> to say yeah. you can't work for the company that First Light's a part of and not say you should check out some First Light, yeah. <laughs> which it is great stuff. You should check it out. But uh, let's say something other than the company that we work for. <laughs> uh, what would be something that would be really impactful for $1,000? I will, I'll, I'll let you guys think about it. I'll tell you one of the things that for me has made the most difference. And this is no partnership related. This is just like the thing that I love. Has, and I've talked about it many, many times. So this is no surprise for anybody. But if I look at anything that's impacted my hunting more over the last five years, it's been getting a damn good, easy, portable set of sticks and a saddle. Like for me, that's changed my game. It's it's allowed me to hunt public land so much more easily. It's allowed me to become much more flexible and versatile in hunting my private land spots. I love it. I'm I'm done with permanent sets. I'm now all about moving from different locations, you know, being adaptable and having a set of equipment that is really quiet, is really lightweight and is simple to use you know, has made a big, big difference for me. So for me personally, that means that I've, I've been using Timber Ninja sticks the last year that I fell in love with. There's these new tethered ones that I'm trying out this year that seem pretty darn nice too. And then I love my tethered saddle, the Phantom. Um, that's my favorite piece right now of anything I'm using. 
Anyone else? This this won't take up his whole thousand dollar budget, but nothing can like ruin a hunt quicker than like sore feet or wet feet or cold feet. We don't know the situation that Josh is hunting in, but if he's primarily going to be hunting um, in like Wisconsin starting during the rut, then I would really encourage him to like get some good quality warm boots and some good quality warm socks. And now there's a lot of different companies that make like these booties that you can slide over your boots when you're at your tree stand. Or if he's out west in Idaho and he's going to be hiking a lot, um, just some shoes that he's going to be comfortable in and that are broken in quickly. Uh, or, or shoes that are going to keep his feet dry if he's crossing a lot of water. I, I think that's just like a really important, underrated part of any hunting and whitetail hunting specifically. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't mention um, the acorn cruncher or that grunt tube, <laughs> that grunt tube you like that like hangs down to the tree or something. <laughs> Yeah. What are your favorite gimmicks? Mm, the the ground grunter is a good one. Grunter, that's yep. it. If yeah. you're not familiar, it's <laughs> like a 25 foot tube that runs from your tree stand down to the ground uh, to make it sound like the the deer is grunting at eye level rather than 20 feet up a tree. That could make or break a, a calling sequence, as honestly, any hunter knows. Yeah. Honestly, now that that thing's out of production, you might be able to buy one of those for a thousand dollars on eBay. <laughs> Hayden, you got an idea there? Yeah, I mean, I I would say one of the most revelatory things in my own hunting is number one, you got to spend so much time. You you can't kill them if you're not there, right? And like that's like kind of the my number one philosophy in whitetail hunting. Again, like hunting small tracks, I don't have a ton of spots to like move around to, so a lot of times it's important for me to set up in a creek bottom or a travel corridor where I can just sit there and be on them and, and stay on them all day. I realized that I had never uh, had a hunt really ruined by, uh, you know, shooting a mid-range bow. I realized that I had never really had a hunt busted by uh, some, you know, ground grunt tube or an acorn cruncher that I didn't have. What I did have a lot of hunts ruined by was getting down at two o'clock in uh in the middle of like a november afternoon or like nah, maybe not two o'clock but like noon in a november afternoon because i just wasn't comfortable so i started investing more in my comfort which meant higher quality clothing so i could sit for longer periods of time and not feel uncomfortable and not just have that little like voice in the back of your head being like oh man It'd be really good to go get a sandwich right now and hang out inside and warm up. I can come back a couple hours later and, you know, I could probably grease back up into that tree and be okay. And I started killing a lot more and a lot bigger deer when I invested in my own comfort through clothing. It's a darn good sales pitch. I'm on it. It is. Tony? Do you think he has any favorite clothing company? I bet he does. We'll <laughs> let everyone assume. Uh, I can't believe Spencer didn't just jump in there. If you go to TheMeatEater.com. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got, Tony? Um, you guys stole all my good stuff, but I, I will say one thing that I've really, well, there's two things, I, and I'm just going to throw this out there and I'm going to leave it, and then I'm going to move on to what I really want to talk about. Uh, if you're going to invest, I'm assuming this this is a bow hunter here, maybe not, but don't buy cheap broadheads. <laughs> Like carve out a little bit of that, carve out a little bit of that thousand dollars and buy some quality broadheads. Uh, the thing that I've come to love this kind of this kind of plays off what you talked about. It kind of plays off what Hayden said is uh, packs, man. Like I, I never, you know, when I was growing up, we just 
grabbed a backpack, right? Like we were like the kids leaving first grade recess. Like I just had whatever on my back and starting to hunt out West and really paying attention to what your backpack means. It's, it's, it's changes your whole worldview on that. And you know what it's like. You carry a bunch of camera gear out there. And, you know, if you're carrying in sticks in a stand or just your sticks or whatever, or the all day sit and you're thinking like, man, I, I'm a coffee addict. Like mm-hmm. I'd like to have two things of coffee here. You take two things of coffee out with you? Dude, I'm, you know me. Like, <laughs> I do know, but I, I just thought maybe. Like just toilet paper. People, yeah. people, <laughs> I hope so. People, dude wipes. People who are listening to this are probably like, I wonder who's the bigger addict, Hayden or Tony? Like, <laughs> we, keep, different we things, keep throwing but... out all these little hints like, oh, we're micro dosing our honey. We're listening to Bob Marley. Like, no, I, if I'm going to sit all day, yeah, I will have coffee. I I can't help it. It's the it's my drug of choice, man. And just just having the stuff there that I need to sit all day and maybe some different layers of clothing depending on what's going to happen and just just having your entire day's worth of stuff just secure, easy to carry if you're going in a long ways and then that pack situation so often for me where I'm hunting turns into my game recovery vehicle. You know, so it's like, you know how that is where a lot of people think about like, I don't want to hunt down there because I don't want to get a deer out. Like if you, if you have the means to piece them out and carry them out and you, and you have the pack to do it, you don't think about, I mean, you think about it, but it doesn't, it's not a hindrance anymore. And so that's kind of been a going more of a Western route with my packs has kind of changed how I look at whitetail hunting. And that's, you know, it's kind of situationally specific. If I was walking out the back door to hunt 300 yards from my house, it'd be a different deal, you know? Yeah, good ideas. Tangentially, uh, a good pack and quality clothing arguably saved my dad's life. He fell out of a tree stand from like 20 feet up and had a good pack full of extra layers with him, landed on his back, ended up breaking his back. He can walk. He's okay now. Uh, in fact, we just did an archery elk hunt this last, uh, this last year, you know, the dude's 67 and bulletproof, but, uh, fell down and the only thing that saved him was landing on these it's pennsylvania so we got kind of some glacial boulders and stuff like that in the area that we hunt in northeastern pennsylvania and uh bounced right off that i mean he still had to crawl a half mile back to like his car to go get help and ended up i think getting an ambulance ride all the way down from northeastern pennsylvania to penn hospital in philadelphia but the uh yeah, it, it 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 was pretty wild, but um, you know, another benefit. <laughs> to a case to be made for extra layers. Hay- Hayden has a lot of people in his life in like full body cast, doesn't he? <laughs> He's got his rodeo back, clown girlfriend. To, back, <laughs> dude, you're gonna get me in so much trouble. <laughs> oh yeah. I, another thing that's not gonna eat up this guy's thousand dollar budget. Um, and I think it's criminally underpriced is an on X subscription. Ah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's only yeah. $30 for a single state. Like I, I would literally pay $200 for it because South Dakota was like sort of one of the last States to, to get added. So as of five years ago, when I was hunting in South Dakota, the alternative was me hauling around a stack of plot books that I would then have to like second reference on Google earth. And then I'd still end up knocking on the wrong door or not being able to find the person's tax address to, to track down the right phone number. Um, so whether you're like just hunting a singular property in Iowa or you're hunting a lot of public land in West Virginia, like it, it's good for anybody. And 
it, it's like almost hard to fathom not having it at this point. Yeah, I agree. And since it's got a thousand bucks, buy it the full the full country for a hundred. Yep. So then you can travel, you can dream, you can scout all those future hunts. I spent a lot of time doing that. Just ah, you know what? I'm intrigued by that spot in Ohio. Click Ohio, pop that one on. I can see everything I need to see. I mean, it's a lot better way to spend your evening than watching some shit on HBO or something. You know? All right. Two final questions, then we gotta wrap this up. For new public land hunters, how should they approach conflicts on public land? We've all heard the stories about new hunters that run into people who've hunted the same spot for years and claim it as their spot and things get hostile. This could be very discouraging to a new hunter. What can be done to dissolve the situation and improve their quality of hunting? This comes from Zach Wirtz. Who's had a bad public land experience like that? Raise your hand. So four out of four of us. Um, who's had the worst experience like that? Has anyone had a firearm or bow uh, menaced at them? Has anyone felt your life threatened? I I have a buddy uh, who down in Florida was forced off a turkey hunting. Uh, until this year, I took him out for his uh, first turkey hunt in quite some time. He got up on somebody somebody's spot on public land. The dude came in, informed him that he was on his spot, and then escorted him off his spot at gunpoint. No way. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Uh, I've not had anything that negative, fortunately. Uh, Tony? Man, you, you just have run-ins, right? Like, I mean, it just... That that's scary, you know. I mean, that's time to call the sheriff in and get that that dude needs to go. Sure. Like that's criminal. Um, it's just it's just a matter of you know treat people well. And I just in the the encounters I've had, even with people who are just like trying to own a spot or something like that, I usually just try to find somewhere else. You know, I mean, I've had I've had people try to you know in I, I think Spencer, you might have a connection to South Dakota. Did you mention that? Mm. You aware? <laughs> <laughs> I have had some uh, situations, and you and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday with with people in South Dakota who I think were guiding on public land, and they were trying to kind of like yeah. bully us off. And I'm just like, if I suspect something like that, I'm just going back. I'm calling the CEO. I'm like, I don't know. You might want to dig into this. This guy sucks, and he's he's taking this stuff way too far, you know. But most interactions are just you're just bumping into somebody, and it sucks because you're like, ah, oh, this dick's in my spot, and he's like, oh god, this guy sucks. He's in my spot. That's just that's just how it works. Yeah. I think 90, 95% of those things are usually fine. Like you said, each one of you, oh, go your own way and be friendly and try to go about your own thing. I think that's how most go. So to anyone listening, I would say don't be terrified away from public land because of the one bad story you heard. Uh, most of the time it's not like that. Uh to your point, Tony, my approach has always been be kind, treat them the way you'd like to be treated, and then go find somewhere else. I just don't want to deal with people if I don't have to, so I'd rather avoid them. And this this is like a very privileged uh, suggestion on my end because of the job I have and because I don't have any kids to take care of or anything like that. But hunting weekdays are just so much better than hunting weekends when you're hunting like a shared permission place or public land. I know it's helped me kill more deer and turkeys being able to be in the woods like Tuesday through Thursday rather than Friday through Sunday. Um, and I understand that everybody has like the benefit of, of doing that, but when you can, it's, it's just a much better experience. You're going to avoid these situations a lot more. Very good idea. Very good point. Last question. This comes from, uh, AccuSick maybe or a Cusick. 
like John Cusack, 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 yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) something like that. My question, his question, her question says, my question comes from the mindset of someone whose first archery season was last year. I spent a lot of time absorbing content over the last two years, trying to scout, understand bedding areas, travel routes, and access. All important stuff. My question is, if you had a new archery hunter, but someone who's who's had experience hunting in the woods, what one, two, or maybe three things would you tell that person to really focus on and absorb? There's a lot to learn, and I'm really just trying to find out where to start. Great question. And there's a lot of new hunters out there today, and there's a ton of advice on what to do. There's 18,000 podcasts, YouTube series, articles, books, magazines, all telling you, do this, do this, do this, do this. That can be overwhelming. Uh, So let's each have one idea for a new hunter, how to make sense of this wild world of new whitetail information, which is telling you to do all sorts of different things, sometimes contradicting things. Um, (laughs) Spencer, go. (laughs) One of the things that I struggled with when I first started bow hunting, um, and it was my fault, but it was also sort of because of the content that I was consuming was that I did not get aggressive enough when I was hunting. And I think this has been a huge transition in like the last decade when it comes to whitetail media. A decade ago, a lot of what you would see on TV or YouTube or read in magazines was sort of centered around like these manicured properties that are really well managed in the Midwest. The reality is most people aren't hunting that way. And so they have the ability to not pressure a deer, not get close to a deer's bed all the way until November 5th when a cold front rolls through. And I sort of applied that to my own hunting for the first couple of years. And then I realized that it was, it was a mistake on my end. I needed to be more aggressive. I only have so many opportunities, so many weekends to be in the woods um, that I couldn't afford to just like sit on the edge of this timber or sit on uh, the edge of this bean field all season until November 1st got here. And I think, like I said, this has been sort of a shift in whitetail media with more people like Tony Peterson that have a platform, more people like the hunting public that are really aggressive. I'm not saying that's the answer in every scenario that you need to like go busting into beds and try to do this bump and dump thing and get in ghillie suits and try to reap deer. (laughs) <laughs> but it's like, it's something in the middle there. And, and I think if if you're only consuming one of those things, the, the manicured ultra unpressured thing or the high pressured thing, you're probably going to make some mistakes. And I, I fell in the camp of, I was not near aggressive enough for my first couple of years of hunting. And it probably cost me some opportunities at deer. Yep. Absolutely. On that one. What do you got, Tony? Um, I would just piggyback on what, what Spence said there and, and say that the, the benefit to the, the modern hunting, uh, the, the amount of content we have now is that you can curate the kind of content that is more, you know, closely relatable to your, your own situation. And I would use that as much as you can, but I would also say, don't ever let anything you read or hear or somebody else say influence whether you're going to go into the woods or not. Like when you're, when you're starting out, you have access to all these amazing people who've done a lot of good stuff out there. They're they're They learn that stuff through experience. So you can kind of jumpstart that you can, you can, you can get a little ahead with it, but really to get good, you got to get in there. You just, you got to go, you got to make those mistakes and, you know, kind of to Spencer's point, like 
if you're going in and you're kind of you're kind of leaning one way, you're being real cautious. You know, like I'm not going to pressure, I'm not going to do it, and it's not working. You're not enjoying it, or you're not having those those encounters that you think. Then it might be time to switch things up a little bit, get a little bit more aggressive, or try something different, and just learn out there. Yeah, you you stole my two ideas. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, what I would say is that to to your point, don't ever let this whole idea of being selective when you hunt or where you hunt or if you should go in the woods or not, don't ever let that keep you from gaining that experience. The number one way to learn when you're new is just being out there in the woods. You have to just go. So while you might hear me preach, sometimes you know fewer, smarter hunts is better than a whole lot of dumb hunts. I'd rather have a whole lot of dumb hunts when I'm brand new. So while maybe I'm going to go out on a I might only hunt four times on a particular property because I know the right times to hunt and I'm going to observe and I'm going to be careful on a strike. You know, you, you hear sometimes talk about like surgical strike type hunting where you wait for the right moment and you know when the right moment is and you go in and you can kill them in a couple sits. That's great for someone who has a lot of experience. That's a very bad idea to try to do if you were brand new. Do not be surgical. Take the shotgun approach when you're brand new. Go out there and hunt a bunch. Hunt dumb. Do crazy things. Just see what happens. So... Consume all this media if you want, but don't get married to any one type or any one person. It's okay to be polygamous when you're an early deer hunter, right? Right? Is that the right? Did I say that right? Um, <laughs> polygamy in the deer hunting world, and by that I mean, by that I mean, try different things. So take the approach of like sitting and being conservative. You're laughing too much, Tony. Knocking me yeah, off my game here. I was. Just go ahead. <laughs> Uh, what I'm trying to say is try the Spencer Newharth approach one day. Try the Tony Peterson approach one day. Listen to what Zach Farenbaugh says. Try that one day. Go out and do what you heard Adam Hayes talk about in the podcast. Try that one time. Try all these different things. You don't need to get stuck on any one and, and then ask why. Like what happened and why? You tried this thing. Mm, that did not work. Why not? What did I learn? How did the deer react? What did I find in this area? Try this other thing. Hmm, that worked really well. Why did that work well in this situation? Why did that deer do what he did? Why was my setup right in this case, but two days ago when I tried that other thing, why didn't that work? Try these things and then reflect on it. Think about what happened and what might have been behind that. That's how you get better. You don't get better by listening to 10,000 podcasts and never trying anything. You don't get better listening to 10,000 podcasts and only doing the one thing because you think this guy is the best. And then you just stick to that one thing, even though it's completely irrelevant to where you hunt or what you do. So try a lot, learn, adjust, and have low standards when it comes to shooting deer when you're getting started. Don't feel like you need to hold out for some kind of old deer or quote unquote big deer or whatever. When you're getting started, and even if you're doing this forever, if you have, a, if you get a kick out of shooting a spike, do it. But if you're brand new, do not feel pressure to wait for a buck or to wait for anything. One of the biggest things, one of my greatest regrets as a young hunter was that for some reason I thought my first deer had to be a buck. And I hunted in a place where I saw very few bucks. Like the first 15 years of my hunting experience, my first 15 years hunting that I can remember. So some of that was sitting with my dad. Some of that was sitting by myself. I think I saw three bucks in 15 years. Right? I hunted up in the big woods in northern Michigan. And you'd be lucky if for the whole season you saw five deer. And so I'd see does, but I wasn't going to shoot a doe. And then I started bow hunting on my own in Southern Michigan. I had three acres to hunt and I had all sorts of shot at does, but nope, I got to shoot a buck. I got to shoot a buck. I got to shoot a buck. And so I finally got a shot at a nice big buck actually coming out and I'd never done this thing before. So I couldn't 
handle the moment of the truth. I knock the arrow off the rest and the big deer runs away. Then I finally get a shot at another buck. I've never done this before. Could have shot 50 does over the course of the last 10 years, but never done this before. So I freak out and I shoot a tree. You know, if I had been shooting does from the time I could have, I would have gotten through a lot more. I would have learned a lot more about how to handle those final moments. And that would have helped me grow tremendously in those early years of my hunting experience. So I would just tell you, experience the whole thing. Don't put any kind of arbitrary boundaries on what you can or should do just because someone else does it. Go out there, have a good time, try a lot of new stuff, learn and enjoy the learning. The outcome, the end outcome, as much as I know we all want to get the thing, we want to put a tag on a deer, that's what we're trying to do. Remember that the real joy and the fun and the, the, the thing is the process. If I just gave you a dead deer, that would mean nothing to you compared to having months and months or years of work into it. So don't ever forget to enjoy that process. Hayden, I think you got to wrap us up. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with all of the mentality stuff, and I think that those are all like super excellent points. 90% of deer hunting is the mentality you approach it with, right? I'm going to offer a little bit of tactical kind of advice, and that's I see so many new hunters get hung up on, you know, spraying themselves down with like scent control or like covering themselves with like fox pee or, 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 or like, or like all these things, all of which can be good to a certain extent. I would say my one piece of advice for a new hunter is to gain a really intimate understanding of the wind in relation to where you're hunting and how you're hunting. Uh, once I realized that, yeah, sure, every now and again, like a deer would come by and I'd be about to line up for the shot. It would win me at 20, 30 yards and it would get out of there. I realized there were probably 10 times as many deer that had circled around 300 yards down from a bad setup and blew out before I ever even knew that they were there. Um, so, so really have an understanding of not only how the wind works in like kind of like a straight way, but also how it's working in creek bottoms where you have that cold creek bringing the wind down or on a hillside or a narrow ravine or, or things like that. I would say that that's probably my best piece of advice for a new hunter. Good stuff. That was definitely another one of those things I was not doing right in those early years. <laughs> I remember so many times, and I don't know why no one in my family cared about wind or thought about wind, but <laughs> so many times I'd go back to the cabin and be like, man, I don't know, these deer, they spooked again. I didn't move. I didn't make any noise. I don't understand what was going on, but they boogered out of there. I don't get it. And no one was like, oh, it's the wind. <laughs> nope. We are just like, I don't know either. <laughs> it's such a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> we were kind of behind the times on that. All right. Well, uh, this is good stuff, guys. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Spencer, you want to tell everyone about where they can find all the new Wired Hunt goodness again? No. You're good at this. You're, you're really good at this. I want you to lean into it. You can go to TheMediator.com, and somewhere on the homepage, you're going to find an easy way to navigate to all the Wired to Hunt content that's new, or you can type in WiredToHunt.com, and that'll just take you straight there. Beautiful. New podcasts, new videos, new articles, and lots more coming your way. I appreciate you following along, being a part of this Wired to Hunt community. It's pretty awesome to see that this thing's still around more than 10 years after it started, so thanks for being a part of the ride. Thanks for joining us for this next phase. And uh, until next time, stay wired to hunt. 
Nice. Well, geez. <laughs> Real professional. Good way ending. to get my hand on my phone and just fumble it right into the mic. Spencer. I, I think we got to leave that. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.